Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. I don't look for areas. I look for partners. What we're doing is viable nationwide. I mean, you can go into any of the 50 states and there's a need for what we're doing. It doesn't matter where you live. So if you're investing, people ask me all the time, you know, what markets are the best to invest in? All of them. You just have to find your niche in in your market. But all all 50 states are, are good markets to invest in. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Jerome Maldonado. And Jerome has had quite the illustrious career. He, he's done a little bit of everything. And uh, over his career in 20 years in real estate, he's done over 200 million in transactions with, with another 52 million alone in 2021. And it's anything from multifamily to hotel conversions into multifamily to warehouses and looks like uh, maybe a few other things. And then outside of that, you, you've got some... Really interesting uh, kind of business ideas where you're buying some brick and mortars and turning them into e-commerce and building out your warehouses. So excited to, to just dig into a lot of what you're doing today and, and hear your story. So let's let's start there, Jerome, with, you know, tell the folks who you are and how you got to be where you are today. Hey, thank you. Good morning, Kent. And thank you for having me on the show, first and foremost. And um, thank you for all you listeners that are that are out there. Uh, either aspiring to invest or investing right now. Um, so I know the show primarily is focused on people that are passively investing, which is great. Um, I kind of started that way back in 1999. I, I went through some business um, hiccups in the uh, mid 90s and I was in multi-level marketing. The FTC shut us down in 1997. And in 1998, I, I found myself opening up a construction company didn't have any experience in construction, Kent. It was um, merely a survival means at the time. My brother-in-law um, was in need of, um, of, of having a company to work for because his other company went out of business for tax evasion. And I, ironically enough, knew how to sell and build a business because of my extensive five-year career in direct sales and network marketing. And so that's what I did. I went off and uh, I got my contract license really to help my brother-in-law. He didn't show up for the test I did. So I bought my first rental home passively just to have an asset. 
um, to invest in and have a solid brick and mortar type of uh, asset that in spite of things falling apart, if they ever did again, I had something to show for it. And that went to two rental homes. I didn't like the single family rental home deal after owning two of them. And um, because I had the construction company, I got into retail and I started buying land and building houses and subdivisions. And the, the money I put there, I needed to diversify it so that I could have tax write-offs. So I started building out retail centers. Um, and then I started building out office, 2008 hit. Um, and so things changed obviously tremendously in 2008. And that's what got me into multifamily uh, was in 2010, I found myself in Phoenix um, purchasing small fourplexes and um, doing massive rehabs on these uh, distressed assets, but we were picking them up for pennies on the dollar. And in all honesty, no one ever sat down with me, Kent, to teach me about real estate and what to invest in. I had to just make common sense out of it. I was kind of my own mentor in the real estate space. And I never really considered myself a real estate professional. It just kind of grew that way. And um, that portfolio that I bought in Phoenix went from a $500,000 investment to what's now over $15 million just on that one little sector of investment that I made in 2010. And it still sits all in multifamily. And um, because there's a housing shortage now, um, as things evolved and as life has evolved over the course of the last 25 plus years of my career, um, as you mentioned, I've kind of moonlighted in a lot of different areas of real estate. I feel like I've just pivoted when I felt when I've needed to because of economic changes, life circumstance changes. And I'm excited to be in the multifamily space aggressively now. Uh, we're building affordable housing. And, um, you know, we, we actually, when we wrote that bio at 50 million, we're at $68 million on our books for 2021. Um, it, it's, it's been a great career. It's been a great ride. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and, and we're happy to have you. I think there's a lot we can learn uh, through all the different things you've done. So, yeah, so 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 the Phoenix portfolio. I mean, that's uh, that's great. I mean, that, I mean, Phoenix has seen uh, nothing but growth since then. I was just out there a couple of weeks ago, and I mean, the place is just booming. So, you know, I can imagine that's going to continue to do very well for you. But you've you've since then you're expanding into a few other different areas, a few other asset classes, right? But you come back to multifamily and now you said you're, it, the focus is on building affordable housing. Is that really the, the focus at this point? It is. So we are building single family residences in uh, Washington state in down in um, Palm Springs, California, here in New Mexico. Um, but we're deploying all that into multifamily. So when I say affordable housing, I should say affordable rooftops because um, we're taking what most people go and develop as class A real estate um, for investors. They go into these large portfolios with all the bells and whistles, the swimming pools, the gyms, um, all the amenities all decked out and just um, um, that typical A plus class investment property that are being built new. Well, we're taking that model. And because when I look at things, I, I've, I've went through so much in my career, Kent, that I look at things in a perspective in a worst case scenario. I always try to purchase in an, with an exit strategy. And this is great for investors. So if you're a passive investor listening to this, um, one thing that you look for when you're, when you're investing with a group of people is what is their risk tolerance, right? And you got to evaluate that based on your age, based on your own personal, um, your personality, 
you know, and, and my stock guy has done that with me. He said, you know, Jerome, we got to, we got to buy stuff based on your risk tolerance and um, people investing need to do the same. And so when we got into building affordable rooftops, um, it was more so as a worst case scenario. And we're just happening to hit um, an aspect that the U S American um, investors need to be focused on right now because we're underbuilt by over 7 million rooftops right now. And so we need to find a solution to that. Um, Decade-wise, we only build about, in every 10 years since the 70s, we only build about 10,000 rooftops per year. And so we, we need right now today, 7 million. I mean, we, we, there's only 10 million that are built out per decade and we need 7 million today. So with that said, we said, I, I said to myself, okay, I can go in and build class A real estate. And then if the market tanks, what is my viability of that asset? Um, if I look at it in perspective to like what happened in 2008, I said, I want to position myself where if, excuse my language, but if all shit hits the fan and the, the economy crashes, where am I at rental wise? Can I keep, can I stabilize these assets, keep them stabilized and without having to um, fork out money, my wife and I call it trash can money to service debt. And so what we what we did is go into, we went into affordable housing. We stripped out all the amenities. We we have a brand new build. So we're building it just like any other class A um, piece of real estate, but no swimming pools, three stories, no elevators, um, garden style apartments. And um, we're going in and, and they've been a home run. Um, we're able to build them for a lot less money. We're, so hence we're able to lease them for less money. And, um, and we can also see the growth of appreciation over the course of time. But what people love about them is they're new. There's no maintenance to them. There's not a lot of landscaping to them. They're a very simple build. Um, so they've been home runs for us. Um, we've been focusing on that. We're able to build them quicker. The municipalities, they love us. Um, they love the idea. Um, they're embracing us in multiple areas. And um, we're going into redevelopment areas, getting tax abatements on property taxes. Um, so a lot of a lot of positive, a lot of up, um, a lot of positive uh, sides to it for investors and for um, in, for investors and for us, you know, so it's a win-win situation. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're just <laughs> you're filling a, an obvious need there, right? I mean, people, like you said, we're short anywhere what seven million plus roofs, rooftops. So yeah, filling right that need and. And allowing, giving people a good place to live as well as, as creating some value for investors. So are you, are you building and then selling these and moving on? Or are you building and, and holding on to them for the long term? A little bit of both. So um, we're, we're holding on to a lot of them. Um, and so we'll refinance them. And uh, once they're done, we're walking into them because some of them I'm the general contractor, some of them I'm the co-general contractor, uh, meaning that I hire a GC, um, but I hire... Uh, I don't hire the, the quote unquote big name GCs because I've been in construction my whole life. I hire the smaller GCs and um, we micromanage from our office what they're doing. And so we're able to, it's a little bit more work on our part, but we're able to stabilize and build them for less money mm -hmm. um, per square foot. And so we walk in with a lot more equity in our projects. Um, so it's, it's been great. It's a great business model. I don't know that I want to exercise it forever because it is a little bit more work. Mm -hmm. um, but well, I well, I got the energy, the time, and the uh, and the ability to do so. I think we'll continue doing it that way because it uh, makes the projects more viable and a lot more lucrative as well. Sure. So you mentioned a few different markets you guys are working in. I mean, kind of diverse. You said Washington yep. State. You said Palm Springs. You know, maybe some others. So, what is it that you look for when you're looking to enter a market? A good partner. A good partner. 
Um, I enter markets based on, on the people I'm working with. Um, so when I say I, it's a, it's a we thing. Um, I, I, in 2016, I started embracing the fact that I'll do stuff with partners. And in 2018, I took on my first partner, which was actually Ty Lopez, if people are familiar with who he is. Um, he's a big e-commerce uh, name. But um, I don't look for areas. I look for partners. Um, the areas, the, what we're doing is viable nationwide. I mean, you can go into any of the 50 states and there's a need for what we're doing. It doesn't matter where you live. So if you're investing, people ask me all the time, you know, what markets are the best to invest in? All of them. You just have to find your niche in, in your market. But all, all 50 states are, are good markets to invest in. Um, I look for partners um, where people are, are good and where I have a good partner that I trust, I like, they're, they're wise. And it just happens that Washington State was a good state to go in and build residential subdivisions. They, um, all the e-commerce companies there, Google, Facebook, um, LinkedIn, they're, they're all there. And so Ramez Dabs is one of my business partners. He lived there. He worked for Microsoft. He was building homes. And I went in and told him, look, let's scale this. Let's, let's go into multifamily. There's a need um, for affordable housing. And so we went in and we started building subdivisions and then deploying that capital tax deferred into multifamily. So it just worked out. Um, Phoenix is a market I love. I probably have close to $100 million total in that market between office, retail, multifamily, and, and, and everything else that we're, we're doing. Um, Kyle Mitchell, um, he's, a, he's a big REI guy in multifamily. Uh, you know, we became good friends uh, several years back. Um, highly respect him as an asset manager. Um, he's been great in syndication, asset management, um, and he happens to have boots on the ground in Phoenix, so a market that I love. So we continue focusing on that market. We're doing a lot of hotel conversions, office conversions into multifamily. And, um, and so Kyle helps us with boots on the ground in that market. Um, same thing with Palm Springs. I got a David Carbajal. He was a, a big, um, he was an owner's rep for a big billion dollar a year development company. And in that development company, he, he worked side by side with the owner. So he learned the logistics of large multi hundred million dollar builds and billion dollar with a billion dollar a year company, and so we took it on a smaller scale and um, we're doing housing developments, and then we're deploying that capital tax deferred into multifamily developments up in the uh, Palm Springs area. So same thing, and then I got boots on the ground here in New Mexico. That's why I develop here. Um, ties up in Puerto Rico, hence that's why we we're doing stuff in Puerto Rico, and um, he also has his farm in Virginia. So we're also doing a lot of warehouse um, purchasing in Virginia and also in Chicago. So that's where we decide to invest. And it, the reason why is because of partners, good partners. Gotcha. So you've been able to scale all over the country, including Puerto Rico, but through good partnerships. Yep. That's it. Through good partnerships. And my partnerships are different. So I always, I urge people, I know a lot of people on this podcast are looking at their passive investors, right? So this even holds true for the people that you're investing with and the, uh, the asset managers that are actually taking down your projects. One, you wanna know them, right? You wanna know them for a while, um, know their character, their personalities. Um, all of my partners are a different place in life than most people getting started in business. Um, early years, I hated partners. I never did partners all the way to, to until 2018. Um, everything was solo. All our developments were 100% in-house through our companies. Um, and the reason why is because I have bad experiences, like most people hear nightmare stories about dealing with partners, one partner taking on more work than the other. 
I don't mind taking on a little more work than, than a partner sometimes, you know, it just really depends on what they're bringing to the table. At the end of the day, you got to make a project go. And um, there's a lot of people involved. Um, but where most of my partners are, are they're not trying to pay a mortgage. They're not trying to pay a light bill. They're not trying to pay a, a car payment. Um, they've passed that. Um, so my partners are, we're creating generational wealth at this point in time in our life. And so I don't want to call it a game, but it's kind of a game, right? Like um, they're in a different mental place. Um, so we're not fighting over over $100, $1,000. Um, we're trying to make changes in, in our future generation lives and the people's lives around us. So um, our partnerships work. Um, there's not a lot of greed in our, in our relationships. We just got to make projects go. So whatever it takes to make projects go, all my partners have been very good and very diligent in, uh, in helping do so. So those are good partners to have, people that aren't trying to pay a mortgage, but are really trying to just build something and grow something um, that is bigger and greater than just us individually and our personal lives and our personal bills. So those are what I look for in partners. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. So, I mean, it sounds like what you're looking for are folks that have uh, the similar goals to you, right? Similar goals, yep. similar vision, um, similar drive. Right. So I, I think that's really important to, to bring up is like when you're talking, I mean, a lot of people in real estate look to partner. Um, and I think a lot of people enter into partnerships too fast because they feel like they have to have a partner uh, kind of as a support system to, to get going. But um, I think all, oftentimes that's missed is, is that upfront conversation. I mean, I look at it as like you're getting married, married, right? Yes. You're not going to get to marry. You're not going to get married to somebody unless you've had conversations about what are your goals, right? What are your finances? Like, you know, and what are you trying to achieve ultimately? And are we aligned? So I think that's great advice. Bro, that's exactly it, Kent. And you are, you're entering into almost like a marriage with these people, you know? So yeah, you got to see in line. And, and there's moments like, I remember it was funny when Ty and I started doing business together, um, his attorney sent me over a, a, a partnership agreement. And I, I obviously took it, sent it to my attorney and my attorney looked at it. And uh, my attorney comes back with it all redlined. And he said, there's no exit. Um, uh, there's no exit um, clause in here in case one of you guys needs to exit. And uh, he said, I don't like that. You know, you need to have an exit strategy. Otherwise, if you don't, um, one person or the other lands up with all the assets. So I took it back to Ty and said, hey, Ty, there's no exit uh, clause in here. We need an exit clause. And he goes, we don't do exit clauses. And, um, and I said, why is that? And he goes, well, because um, in partnerships, we got to work through it. Even if we want to, if there's moments in time we want to kill each other, um, that forces us, it makes us work on things. And so I saw his, I saw his perspective on it. And um, even though I do put exit clauses in a lot of my contracts, um, that was one that I went in and I, and I had been doing business with him for over four years. Um, we own a lot of other uh, um, distressed retail brands together um, that I'm an equity owner in. And, um, and so I trusted him enough to say, okay, I know this guy's intent. Um, if we, if we get at it at each other, we're just going to have to figure it out. And, and we have, we've, we've had our moments. Like I think most people do, um, like, well, good husbands and wives do, you know, we all have our, our squirrels, our, our quarrels and disagreements and how we view and see things. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we work through them. And, um, so I signed the agreement with no exit clause. So, you know, with Ty and I, we, we don't have an exit clause. It's like, look, you know, we're, we're going to build this. Um, we're going to have, we have to bloody each other up before we get out of this thing. You know, it's going to, yeah. it's all or none, you know? You, so you guys are beyond married. There, there, yeah. We're beyond no married. Yeah. <laughs> we're like Siamese twins now. 
That's right. That's right. Well, I think that's really interesting. And and that's a great message for folks. Uh, I want to dig in a little bit into a couple of the strategies that you're deploying, because I think they're really interesting and and very relevant right now. One of them is hotel conversions into multifamily. So tell us a little bit more uh, about what you're doing there. And, you know, why you see the opportunity there. And and, and then kind of how do you go about making that conversion? So, I've, I've kind of become a master at finding um, opportunity before it exists. Um, and I don't know if I call myself a master, but I, I've gotten really good at uh, finding opportunities between the cracks. Um, and I tell people, you know, there's opportunity everywhere. When there's, when there's times of financial distress, there's opportunity. Um, and so we were working on converting distressed retail um, because there's a mass I mean, you, you guys see them. There's malls and distressed retail all over the country. Um, retail has slowed and died. Um, office has slowed and died. And there's a market sector on the larger square footage, right? The smaller retail, smaller um, office hasn't. They're still in need. But the larger square footage ones have. And so immediately when COVID hit, and there was there was shutdowns. I sat back and said, oh, my God, we're looking at retail the cities and municipalities. So if you follow me here, you'll understand the course my brain took. We were going in like after these 450,000 square foot um, malls to buy them, tear parts of them down, convert part of them to warehouse distribution centers, and then build out multifamily on the 45 acres of parking lot space that you have out there. And so it was going to be a mixed use, de- a mixed use development. Well, we were getting a lot of friction from the cities. It was taking us a lot of time. It was very stressful. Um, and we were, it was taking us years to be able to get this whole business model implemented. And cities still weren't seeing the traction two, three years ago, um, in spite of the mass um, distress retail that was happening in their own cities, they had blinders on. And so we were fighting with municipalities, trying to get them to give us approval, our attorneys with their attorneys, and it was taking an abundance of time and money. And a lot of our risk factors, the longer you have these projects opened up, the, the, higher, the larger, um, the higher your risk factors rise, right? Mm-hmm. And so when COVID hit, we sat back and said, okay, distressed assets, um, who's getting hit the hardest with closed down, like with shutdowns? People in the hospitality industry, people weren't traveling. Um, so we sat down, I started doing some market research. They said, look, travel's not gonna resume the way it normally did until 2023. This is back in 2019. So we started looking at distressed hotel brands. I started taking plane flights at the best time to fly during COVID. The plane, the airports were empty, <laughs> empty. The airports were clean. And I was flying all over the country with my mask on, my hand sanitizer. And, and we went at this. And we started uh, exploring markets and uh, we started seeing which markets we're going to take to it. And um, like anything in life, Kent, those who are the most assertive and uh, the most devoted to what they're doing are going to get the deals right. Um, people quickly, um, investors quickly grasped onto this. And um, so we were lucky enough to be on the forefront of it. So we were able to take down a good, a good, a good amount of uh, hotel brands that were in distress and convert them to multifamily. There's a, some key components in zoning and um, repositioning of the use that have to take place. But um, we've uh, gotten good at it. We know what we need to look for quickly now. And so we're successful. We're, we're underwriting a Motel 6 right now that um, um, seems to be a, a nice viable deal. 
Um, and I won't tell you guys where until we have it tied up, but it's in the Southwest someplace. And, um, you know, so we're still doing it. There's less of these deals available now that a lot of people have grabbed onto it. So now that everybody's kind of grabbed on board, um, we're, we're fortunate to have a, a business plan that works. So we're still able to find them, but there's less of them available now than there was two years ago. So Sure. Sure. So you guys are at the forefront of this, which, yeah, has become a, a really, uh, I guess, common strategy at this point. So when you're looking at, I guess, what what are some of the, the key things that need to be in place that you look for in a hotel to say, you know, that could be a great multifamily property? So we, we look at the zoning first, like you could with construction, since I've been in it, I, I look at every asset, like there's feasibility in every asset, depends on how much you want to put into it, right? So the first thing that we look at, we'll look at the asset and say, okay, if we bought this, like, what would our business model be? And so if, if the units are smaller, do we have to combine them and make bigger units? Or can the market um, bear studio apartments like is there a need for studio apartments in, in, in a given market like we we looked at some stuff up in the seattle market and right around seattle it would work but as you get into like tacoma um in the outskirts areas um less so you know there's less of a market multifamily brokers don't really like to see those assets that much um, because they're hard to fill and who needs 120 studios right unless you're around a university or something so you got to be wise in regards to the type of assets that you're buying and can you fill them? So what we look for is we'll, we'll send them over to a multifamily broker and we get their professional opinion on them. We tell them, hey, if we do X, Y, and Z on this asset, because all of them are different, right? Each, each hotel, motel, whatever it is, it, they're different. And so we put a business strategy that we think makes sense together. And then we take it to a multifamily broker and say, does this make sense to you? Can you fill this? What's it worth if we fill it? And what are our comps, right? So we want to we be proactive in knowing that we have a viable product that a, that a respected multifamily broker can realistically fill up for us and sell for us um, if we decide to sell it. How, what's our exit strategy again? Um, and then we go to the city and municipality. If we, if we see a business model that it's feasible, then we'll go and we'll hire an attorney that works with the city and municipality. And we ask them, you know, hey, can we get zoning changes? Is it gonna, are we gonna have a lot of friction? What's, what's gonna be our requirements? Can we really make this work? And then if we sit down and we say, yeah, it's viable, we can make this work. The cost of construction to fulfill the zoning requirements are very uh, feasible. And so let's roll with it. And so those two factors are really big. Those are the two things that we do is preliminary research to uh, find out if that hotel is viable for repositioning. Gotcha. No, I think that, that's really interesting. And how do you, how do you find the hotels? Is, is it working with brokers? Like you'd find a normal property or is it kind of a, a, a direct uh, to the owner strategy or is it, is that the secret sauce? Well, will call it secret sauce. It's work behind it. I'll tell you guys what I do. I mean, I mean, is there a secret sauce to it? I guess it's a secret sauce. I mean, we just plant seeds. I always, I tell people finding real estate is like planting a garden. You know, you don't go out to a garden and plant a, one carrot seed and say, hey, I'm going to garden carrots or one, mm -hmm. one, uh, um, you know, one seed of corn and say, I'm going to have a harvest of corn. <laughs> you go out and plant a bunch of seeds. And then ironically enough, some of them don't come in and a lot of them do. Um, and same thing with, with, with any guard, same thing with multifamily, same thing with any type of real estate. Um, you got to plant seeds. You got to be out there. You got to be active in the game. 
Um, if you're looking for deals, um, you got to be planting seeds in the ears of a lot of respected professionals, from people that are wholesalers. Um, you know, we obviously have a lot of relationships now. There's a way that we build relationships when we go into new cities. Um, when you're new, it's a little bit tougher because um, these guys want to make sure they're not wasting their time. So in early years, when I started doing this, I had to kind of sugarcoat things a little bit to make uh, myself look a little bit more affluent and more well-respected so that they would bring me deals. And now it's a little easier because we have the deals. They, uh, they can Google us and they, they can easily find out who I am and what we're doing. And, um, and so they say, hey, I want to do business with this guy and they bring those deals. But I plant seeds. I go to cities. I talk to multifamily brokers. I talk to hotel brokers. I've gotten in with the uh, um, American Indian um, Hotel Owners Association, just different stuff, that, different contacts that have that are well versed in the areas that we want. And um, and then when they're in town, we moonlight them. You know, we wine them, we dine them, we take them to Starbucks, whatever it is, and we build relationships. Um, everything that we do is relationship based. A lot of it's off market. Um, we do a lot with, with wholesalers in different markets that, that know us and get to learn to respect us. Um, some deals work, some deals don't. We sell, we, we're very honest and upfront with them. If they don't work, we just tell them no and we go on to the next deal. Yeah, just like everything else, it comes down to relationships, right? So you guys are building strong relationships, you're planting those seeds and then, and then the deals start coming in. So, oh, Jerome, make, makes a ton of sense. I appreciate that. And before, before I let you go, I mean, you, you've done so many things here, you know, you've had built multiple businesses, you've obviously had a tremendous amount of success. I mean, what are some of the, the key takeaways uh, you would give to our listeners and, and ways that they can, you know, follow you or, or kind of match some of, some of your success that you've had? What, what are some of the things you can share with them? Um, I, to when I got into multifamily, um, I, I started buying small, right? I bought small fourplexes I'm in Phoenix in a time of distress. That was one way that I got into the multifamily sector and, and pulled myself out of financial distress. We almost lost everything in 2008, Ken. It, it, I'm not going to sit here and joke with you. We didn't lose anything. Thank God we didn't, we didn't uh, go have any bankruptcies. We didn't um, have any foreclosures. We got through it. Um, it was a lot of work, but um, we rekindled ourself, ourselves by buying small assets, small fourplexes, and we accumulated 64 units of fourplexes over the course of two years. So starting small, growing fast is good, um, but growing smart is even more is even more important. Um, but even more so than that, um, you know, I, I was willing to invest in myself um, and in my education. Um, in 2016, Kent, a great a great idea for most investors wanting to do what I did is to invest in their future in educating themselves. In 2016, when I first started thinking about partnering with people and syndicating. And um, and, be, and becoming an asset manager and starting to to grow my portfolio to where it's going now. Like, how do we go from a hundred million dollars over the course of twenty years to almost seventy million dollars in just one year? Next year we'll put over a hundred million dollars. It's because I invested in my in my future. I, I took a hundred two hundred thousand dollars. <throat> I invested in a syndication. Um, I wanted to poach legal paperwork. I didn't understand five hundred six Cs, five hundred six Bs. I didn't understand the legalities of that stuff. I, I had never been introduced to it, even though I'd been in the industry for so long. I never raised capital. I did it all with my own capital and institutional money. Um, but I knew to, if I wanted to grow, I had to take other people's money and, um, and protect it. So I, I, took, I put my money where my mouth was. I knew I was going to make less money as, um, as an investor. But I'll tell you, it made me more money. 
And so you got to look at things in perspective, right? Um, people sometimes think that they're investing passively and you can be an active passive investor. And so I was an active passive investor. I put $200,000 to work passively. I made checks, but actively I was learning what they were doing so that I could duplicate the process that they were doing. So it was methodical. I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was going after. And if that's what your desires are, are to become an asset manager or to be able to do what Jerome Maldonado is doing, um, you have to do what Jerome Maldonado kind of did. You know, you got to be willing to put your money where your mouth is. And if you have the capital, I invested it. And I invested with other people, made smaller returns in lieu of learning. And um, education's huge, Kent. Um, the, yeah, the, yeah. You got to take the time to educate yourself. It took me two full years of like full-time commitment to understand this game and I'm still learning. So here I sit five years later and, and Kent, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I've learned something. I go, damn, I, I can't believe I didn't know that, you know? So I'm still learning every day. Yeah, no, that really resonates with me because I, I've got a similar story. I mean, that, that was my approach to learn as well was invest passively with, with others and, and learn from them and, and learn the yeah. process. And so I think personally that that is probably the best way you can take so many courses and listen to so many podcasts and books. And those are great places to start, but until you're actually in a deal, uh, I think it's just, it's just, it's just another level of learning. So yeah, and I love hearing that. Um, well, great. Jerome, and appreciate you being here. I want to take you lastly through our keys to success round. I got four questions I want to ask you. And yeah. the first one is put your passive investor hat on, right? So back when you were investing that the $200,000, right? Uh, if you could only ask that sponsor one question, what should that question be? Um, I'll ask, it was, it's a question I asked them. Um, I wanted to know what the cash flow was on it. And I wanted to understand how, how they got there, right? That was a big question for me. Like I wanted to understand the underwriting of um, as a passive investor. I wanted to see, I, I'm, I'm a hands-on type of person. So I have, I'm a numbers guy and I just don't feel comfortable unless I know where things are coming from. I have to visually be able to see it and it has to resonate with me. And I have to know in my brain, like, okay, where is that money coming from? So that um, when, if things go bad, you know what needs to be fixed or where you have to go to fix something. Um, but I need to know where the money's coming in from. So what I asked um, initially when I first invested was I wanted to see how they underwrote the deal. And I wanted to see the financials um, of, uh, of the property, um, the, the trailing 12 of what they were doing, which is the 12 months of financials. And I wanted to see how they underwrote it. I didn't understand still how to underwrite things entirely yet. I understood the, the nuts and bolts, but I didn't understand everything in detail. So that, that's one thing as an investor is understand where your money's coming from and how your money's actually working for you. Don't go in completely blind and just say, okay, here's a couple hundred thousand dollars and keep your fingers crossed and hope that things work out. Um, if you're with a good asset manager, the chances of them working out are pretty damn good, even if you don't know what the heck you're doing. But um, that would be my first question is, okay, what, what is the potential upside here? How are we going to get there? What's the business plan? And where is the money coming from? Like, where are you guys seeing this money and capital? And how is this going to grow? Like, how, how are we all going to get benefit from this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great, great questions. Great questions. And yeah, I mean, going back to, uh, I tell my listeners all the time, like, even though 
it's called being a passive investor. I mean, there's a lot of activity involved. You, you know, you got to be active, especially on the front end, right? It's when you do the work as the investor is vetting out that sponsor and, and vetting out that deal and making sure that, that you understand the details. Um, and it's trust, but verify, right? You get to verify uh, what's going on and where their numbers are coming from. So yeah, I, I like yeah. that a lot. Jerome, what are you most proud of in your career? Um, I, I'm most proud of uh, the security that I give to my, my family and my kids. I, I mean, the career is great, you know, in all reality, you go out, I think once you get, I, I've had success in, since my young twenties. Um, I, I came from just a, a medium family background. My parents are not impressed by my success, by the way, you know, even to this day, um, they're, they're happy that I do well. Um, but I could be working as an accountant and put a roof over my head and my parents would be just as happy. Right. Um, so I think I, I look at things in perspective. Um, this is a business. Um, I thrive on the challenges of being in business. I don't pride myself and pat my back on those. Um, when I succeed on those, I, I feel like God gave us those abilities. We should be moving forward and, and be, be, making ourselves better and, and doing bigger things in life. Um, I, I really pride myself more so in my family um, every day. Um, I try to just become a better dad, a better husband. Um, I make mistakes every day. Uh, you know, I was a little hard on my son last night, even when we were going to bed. And I was thinking about that this morning when I woke up. And it was the first thing that I thought about, not business. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to go do this with my multifamily stuff. It was my son that I thought about first this morning. So what I pride myself on is um, the fact that, um, one, we don't have to worry about money um, like most families do. So I'm thankful to God for that. And um, and I just pray to God that the deals I make always continue to go in the, way, the fashion that I that I have uh, propelled them because I never want to put my family ever at risk. And so I think about them first and foremost. So I pride myself more around really my, 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 my wife, my kids, my family, more so than anything. The deals come and go, right? Um, the adrenaline of a deal comes and goes. Um, you got to you got to set yourself up securely in life, but truly, you know, you got to ask yourself what really matters. And um, to me, uh, more so than anything, now that we've gotten money out of the way, my family is my first priority. So I pride myself um, less so in my business um, achievements than I do in trying to be a good dad, because I'm not a great dad. I try to be a, a better dad and a better husband every single day and just a better person more than anything. Yeah, that Again, that's a great message. I think that I, I think you're exactly right. You know, the the deals will, will come and go, and you know, and I think oftentimes we can get caught up, caught up in that and, and what's going on, and and trying to get to the next level or do the next thing. But like you said, man, at the end of the day, it comes back to family, and you you can have all the all the riches in the world, but if you don't have that, I think uh, you know you, you don't have anything. So that's yeah. fantastic. What's a book that everybody should read? You know that um, <laughs> I'm going to tell you guys this. Um, there's a lot of good books. I get this question a lot. And depending on the, the listener class that I'm talking to will be um, to pick the book hey, that Jerome, I, I lost your audio, man. I'm not hearing you. Did you lose me there or am me, I back uh, on? Mine sure shows. On my, okay. I got you back. I don't know. It just, got me back? just cut out. Okay. Yeah, just cut out for a, a second. Glitch and Wi-Fi. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I get that question a lot. And depending on the type of person and the, and the group of people that I'm talking about would be is what is what I will recommend as far as is books. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go back to old school here and I'm going to recommend um, a book that we all know it's the Holy Bible. And here's why 
Um, there's a reason behind this, right? So if you're not a religious person, there's still, it's still it's the best book written on success. Um, I read a lot of success books um, going through the process. And there was one book called The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. And I remember in my young 20s in the 90s, when um, I read this book, I got into, I think it was the second or third chapter. And in that, in the book, it said the best book ever written on success was the Holy Bible. And so I remember reading that. I read back, I read it again. I said, well, holy shit, if I'm, if I'm a, if the best book written on success is the Holy Bible, why am I reading this book? And I literally closed the book in that second, third chapter. I did go back. I finished the book and I've read it multiple times since then. Um, but I closed the book and I went down to the local bookstore, Barnes and Nobles or whatever it was at the time. And I was living in Jacksonville, Florida at that time. I still remember um, going down to uh, the mall and, and going into a bookstore and purchasing a Holy Bible that fit, you know, closer to the Catholic religion, because that's what I am. Um, and whatever you are, you know, you get one that resonates with you. But I went and bought a Catholic Bible and I still have that Bible and it's all highlighted. And there's so many good business messages in there. Um, and, you know, and every book, every success book really um, hones in on different parts of, of the Bible. And so I went back and I read the Bible and um, I still highlight and, and um, still open it up um, each morning. I read a little passage, just a small passage each day um, as in addition to everything else that I do. Um, I think it's a kind of a cool way. I don't consider myself to be a high religious person. But um, I, I do pride myself in just trying to always be better at what I do. And I think that's a good little means to try to fine tune you, <clears throat> to find, excuse me, to fine tune us each day. Um, because I think each day, depending on what we go through and our levels of stress, we find ourselves doing less than uh, um, perfect things in our life. So to me, it helps me just fine tune me before I leave, leave my house each day. So that's my tip of the day for, for books and what I, what I think is a good, a good re reference of a book to go out and buy and read. So. Perfect. That's great advice. And last but not least, Jerome, what is your number one key to success? Um, consistency, for sure. Um, key to success is consistency. Um, I tell my kids all the time. Um, it's not it's not talent. It's consistency over talent wins. Um, obviously, you want to continue getting smarter and learning all the time. Um, but the tree, the true key to success for anybody is uh, is consistency because if you're consistent and even if you're horrible at what you do over the course of time you'll find your means and you will succeed um, i've just been the most consistent there's not there's no one more consistent than me i tell my kids that in sports i tell my my wife that and as parents um you know consistency wins um I, i'll put consistency up against anything in the world but consistency is my key to success yeah i, I love that and that that actually i mean I'd have to go, I need to go back and do the numbers. Cause like, that's, that's definitely the number one response that, that people have that successful people have that there are people on this show. And, and I think it's my own experience too. And you're a hundred percent, right? Like so much of it is just showing up and continuing to show up. Right. And, and, and because so many people just don't, they just don't want to put in the effort, you know, you maybe do it once or twice that doesn't work. And, you know, you move on to something else or you go back to the couch and turn on the TV, you know, it's uh it's those people that continue to show up. And even when you get knocked down, like you said, no way, you know, you guys had a tough time, but you've come back stronger than ever. And I think yep. that's a great, that's a fantastic message for folks to hear. And I think that's a great play, great place to end it as well. And so Jerome, as we wrap up the show, if, if people want to learn more about you, want to learn more about what you have going on, you know, how can folks get a hold of you? So I'm really easy to find. Um, I know my name is in the, in, in the uh, video. 
Um, but just Google me, Jerome Maldonado. I mean, I'm on every social media platform from LinkedIn to um, Instagram to TikTok and Facebook and, and all of them. On The only one that's slightly different is on uh, Instagram. It's Jerome Maldonado and the number one. Um, you can go to our, straight to our website at JeromeMaldonado.com. Um, we've got a lot of stuff going on. We've got a you know, you can edit this out or let people in uh, November, we have real estate domination 2021. We do the event every year. It's a no sales event, all information, content, and educational event. Um, they can, if you go to realestatedomination.co, um, you can register for it. Um, and I can even send that to you, Kent, if you're okay with that. Yeah, you please put do. that in the, uh, in the show notes. And, uh, but, you know, continue following us. Um, a lot of our stuff, our educational stuff is, is built around um, entirely around education and educating the investors um, because we're looking for good partners, you know, mm-hmm. in good areas. And uh, so the only way we're going to meet them is through the means of doing business together in some small or large fashion over the course of time. So um, reach out to us. We'd like to meet you and um, any way we can help any of you guys, we're happy to do so as well. Absolutely. And, and yeah, do send that to me and we'll make sure everything's listed in the show notes so folks can just scroll down and, and click on it. And it sounds like a great event to check out in November. So Jerome, thank you so much for being here today. You brought a ton of value to the audience, uh, really inspiring story, and, and I think some great practical tips. So thanks again. Have a great rest of the day. Yeah, Ken, thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate you having me and you have a great day as well. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.